I'm Chris Crow. I'm, I'm very pleased to be here to, to help with this, um, with, with this roundtable. I'm a, a journalist by background, but now I work primarily with um, law firms and a few other businesses uh, to generate content, um, primarily written content. And, um, and I'm, uh, up until COVID, I did a lot of these events uh, around tables where we discuss industry sector economic uh, changes. And, um, and I'm very much looking forward to learning more about the hotels industry. I'm Victoria Edwards, Head of Real Estate Finance at Forsters. Hi, my name is Will Kirkpatrick. I'm Head of Hotels at Gerald Eve. I'm Andrew Parker, a partner in the construction team and uh, Head of the Hotels Group at Forsters. Henrik Müller, a General Manager of Fleming's Mayfair. Naomi Tren, I'm a partner in the corporate team here at Forsters. My name is Melvin Gold. I'm an independent hotel consultant. And I'm Sarah Pass. I'm uh, with Forsters, a consultant in the hospitality area and property. Just really to sort of tap into current sentiments and perhaps optimism uh, based on the, the, the struggles that we've all faced over the last two years and, and no doubt in particular the, the hotels industry. How optimistic do those around the table feel? Uh, there was some data um, released by the World Travel and Tourism Council last week that indicated that spending on business travel looks set to rise by 25% this year and a further 34% in 2022. Um, how positive can you be in light of those figures? Um, perhaps Will, would like to start? It's, it's very much a mixed bag. Um, I think you'll find, I mean, if you look where we were this time last year, we didn't know when hotels were opening, when they're closing, and that was all you know, very, very difficult to plan ahead, and, and certainly in terms of staffing as well. The big problem we see now is obviously we are seeing return back to occupancy, we're seeing business start coming back again, but there's so many headwinds and so many issues that are hit, hitting us at the minute, and especially staffing and the amount of debt that's been rolled up. So whilst we thought you know, by this time in Q3, Q4, that a lot of the hotel market would have moved on, certainly from the property side, um, it's still sitting there very much as it was in Q1, Q2. There has been some more sales, but very, very few transactions. And now that's been moved into next year. And we're all waiting to see what the banks are going to do. Henrik, what are you seeing? I think the same for me. I mean, I'm both actually optimistic on one part because business levels are back and very strong back in London. Uh, but um, hotels can't take full occupancy because we have staffing issues. So on the staffing issues, Personally, I don't think they will go away uh, in January or in February like this. I think it will stay for a while with us, you know, and therefore we have to cap occupancy. What do you think will help ease the staffing issues? Do you think it has to be um, visas issued too? Yes, I mean, for example, for us, um, the staff missing are those who are coming normally from Europe um, and they're coming to uh, learn English, you know, and uh, that's the junior positions who serve breakfast, who make rooms, uh, receptionists who come for 18 months, 12 months, 18 months, and all of those are not here. That's one part, uh, a difficult part. Second part for the uh, five-star segment is that um, we need uh, staff who speaks languages for a Pacific market, for example, the upmarket Brazilians who are coming normally across expect a Portuguese, Brazilian-speaking receptionist, uh, and they, they, we don't have those. You know, so those markets can break away from the five-star segment and can go to New York or to Miami, to Paris, where those staff members are available. Yeah. 
Do you think they will come back? Do you think they're staying away because of Brexit or because well, they of can't COVID? Well, they come into the country, so you can't come in for 12 months, 18 months, just to see London and learn English. That's not possible anymore. So therefore, no, there won't be. Until there is changes in the, fee, in, in, in the uh, visa application, or you want to say that. Uh, but I can't see that uh, for the next 12 months, 16, 18 months. I mean, no, I don't know. But you're assuming that Brexit is responsible for this in some way, and I uh, would have some disagreement. And I would cite probably three factors that, that go against that, and one of them is that employment in this country um, is almost as high as it's ever been, if you look at actually the number of employees um, over the whole economy. Um, the numbers that are actually absent are, are not clear from those statistics. And I think also the housing market, both in terms of sales but also rentals, has shown no signs of a crash. And if there were suddenly all of these people that have gone back to other countries that are not coming back, we would see it elsewhere in the economy, in particular in the housing market. So I think that the solution for the hotel sector will be that the ha we have to lay out a clear career path and make our sector sound attractive to those that are seeking employment um, or seeking opportunity. And I think over the long term, the industry um, has not been doing that effectively and the chickens have now come home to roost. No, I disagree because, uh, for example, the housing market doesn't affect any of the junior staff. They're staying outside of London, they're staying in, in accommodation, they're sharing with four or five people. And I know a lot of friends who have those accommodations. They have now only two in the accommodation, not five, or they have one and not three, for example. So these people are clearly Brexit-wise and not coming into the country. And I'm sorry to say, I know I have this discussion often, yeah, we will, we will teach people. No, you can't teach somebody to speak Spanish. You can't sp uh, tell people to, to learn now Portuguese in the next 12 months, 18 months. These people have gone and they won't come back. And we will see that, especially in our industry, that these are missing. And I never was for or against Brexit. It's not my, I'm not British, so it's not my way to say. Uh, but I feel, uh, and I can see, for example, before uh, the Brexit, we had, um, we had about per week, uh, 100 to 150 CVs coming into the hotel for low-end staff. And it's nothing to do with the pandemic because the pandemic stroke in 2020, in March 2020. Sure. But yes, but when the Brexit was, the deal was done, the CVs started to die off immediately and suddenly you had maybe 10 or 15 per week. Now, zero. I have zero CVs per week in my inbox or in the inbox of the HR manager. So this is clearly an indication the Brexit has contributed largely to, to that part. Well, what about your staff who have got the permits? Remember, also, if they were in the UK before Brexit, are they coming back again? Because I spoke to a hoteler yesterday uh, in Dublin, and he's got the same problem in terms of staffing. Mm. Um, but he spoke, when he spoke to his staff and said, can you come back again? Mm. They said, I've been home on furlough, so I've, I've got all this savings saved up. Mm. I'm going to wait till my savings die down, and then I'll come back again. Yes, we hear that too. But on the other hand, uh, where, for example, Many from our staff in London came from Romania, Bulgaria, uh, Poland. Um, these economics have picked up as well. For example, if I take Bucharest, 
and you know that from the hotel sector, suddenly there's a Four Seasons opening, there is, a, there is a Marriott's opening, Interconti's open. So they have large developments of hotels in those cities, which has never happened before. And so why would they come back and leave their family behind just to own the money here and send money back? They don't need any more. But they're also, but they're also short of staff in most European countries and, and in America and other places within our sector. So it's, uh, it flies in the face of it being a totally UK problem. No, Coletti, it's a double whammy for us. Here. It's a double whammy. You know, we have, the, we, have the, we have the Brexit, but also we have the pandemic. You know, I was just in Hamburg in, and I stayed in a wonderful five-star hotel and they had uh, two of the three restaurants closed because they don't have the staff. But the rest still was operated in a five-star kind of environment. You know, most of the hotels that were in London, if you go to, uh, they can't even operate properly a five-star environment. There's no town turndown service in many of the hotels in the city of London. Mm -hmm. You know, there is bar, bars opening late, restaurants closing, like mine, I can't open Monday, Tuesdays and Wednesdays lunch. I don't have to start. And this is at occupancy levels of sort of 40, 50% rather than 80%. I'm at the moment operating 65% occupancy. Yeah. That's for me fully booked because I can't take more. Yeah, Which pre-pandemic yeah. would never have been there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you certainly find a reinforcement to what you're saying about the labour in, in the construction uh, market, which is which is a useful parallel actually, because mm. and it's also something that's affecting the hotel industry mm. because we might come on to, mm. you know, development and refurbishment projects. Construction schemes are costing a lot more, partly because materials are going are becoming so expensive, but, but but partly because the the workforce, which is typically a European workforce in construction companies, have gone and and aren't coming back as quickly. Uh, you know, you, you typically get a, a summer exodus, but they come back and they haven't been coming back as quickly. So that definitely is something that, that, that is, that is happening. That I promise you, if you look at the government employment data, and the figures, their figures may be wrong, mm -hmm. if you add employed people and unemployed, officially registered unemployed people, the number is within 100,000 people in total of the peak that it's ever been. Yeah. Well, picking up on your point about hospitality haven't really looked after their own workforces. This was really um, the subject of some speeches at the Katie Awards that I went to, um, because we've got to make it attractive to be in hospitality. We've got to pay living wages, and we've got to make it. Yeah, we have to make it attractive for the for the British people to work in the industry. Yeah. You know, and and. And this was not just now, generally, for example, I was looking once for a breakfast supervisor and I wanted an English-speaking breakfast supervisor because, you know, and it's not there. You know, all the interviews you have and if you tell them you have to start at six o'clock because that's when we start building up the buffet and when, you know, you know, it means for me five o'clock wake up or 4.45, I won't do that. You know, so uh, that, that's also a problem to, to change the perspective of the, but we're, what we do, so we need to, you know, we need to change the, how do I say that, the... Um, culture. Yeah, the culture, yeah. But that lends yeah. itself to, the, to this whole argument that we have to find ways of making ourselves more attractive to, to, to people. Maybe the shift patterns need to change. Maybe we need to take on more part-time workers. Maybe we need to find that person that would love to work between six and eight o'clock in the morning and then maybe, you know, sometime in the evening, but they've got family commitments during the day, maybe. But, but I, don't, I think we're trying to almost do things the way that things have always been done. And I don't think we're making a, uh, an attractive enough case to the labor market to say this is an attractive 
I totally agree, but for for short-term solution, there is no short-term solution because you were picking up for next year, or the question was next year and the year after next, and that won't change. You know, it will take a long time to do this and to to educate, to to put the culture in, as you said, into our well, there's trade. No, there's no quick know, fix. I there's agree no quick you. fix. I, you know, but people are at least aware of it, and, and a lot of people are doing things like building nice stuff, accommodation, and placemaking, and making it. But that's where we've got to invest more in apprenticeships. Yeah. I mean, if you look at what Bread have done, they have taken people from who have been in, from street crime and things like that there and have now trained them up and they're now very, very loyal to the company because they've come through difficult life that they're, they're progressing through. And I think that apprenticeship part is one way that the UK hospitality needs to do more in and uh, it, it does work. And beyond that, in, in terms of the career path that you mentioned, Melvin, what more can be done? I think, I think it is a matter of the whole industry, but individual hotels and restaurants and whatever as well, showing a path. I mean, you know, it is not untypical. I mean, Henrik's more at the coalface than I am, but it is not untypical for someone to come in at a, at a minimum wage or, or, or junior level and be promotable. If they do a good job, they show enthusiasm, they get committed to the task and be promotable within six to nine months afterwards. And show them that there is that ladder. I think to, to say to someone, come and work for us and you need to be in at these times and the, 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 the salary is nine pounds something and so on, and you're gonna be doing that for the rest of your life is not the same vision that says, we're a young people industry, show us what you can do, and then there's an opportunity. And I'm not sure that I hear that being sung uh, as it should be. You said you think I this is something totally agree. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Sorry, um, that's, that's been happening for a while then, because you, you kind of can see that perhaps COVID um, and decimating or, or giving the hospitality industry a real problem. If you're a young person looking for a career, the hospitality industry has not been your first choice, uh, and so you've lost. We've had 18 months of losing people going in, and there'll be a lag. Um, you know, before that, so, that picks up. So in 1984 or five, which is a very long time ago, there was a brochure produced by the hotel industry called Good Job for Tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And they selected four young people and showed their future career path and what they'd done to get to where they were at that point. And I was one of those four people. <laughs> and when you look at where we are today, the issues are the same. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that voice is being heard loud enough. I know I totally agree because our industry, and I say our industry, my trade for me doesn't have a voice at all in this country. There is nobody. You know, there is there is uh, Kate Nichols, yes, but she represents everybody. You know, um, and you don't see her even doing the pandemic on BBC Breakfast. If I take my country, uh, being German, or I work in France for a long time, so I follow the French news as well. You see people on TV, you see people giving comments, you see people fighting for the industry. Never happened here. Also during the pandemic didn't happen. And the same is also for the healthcare system is the same. There's not a single person fighting for that system. And that's, that's also a big part that we don't have anybody who can represent us and bring those things, what you said, forward. I watched um, uh, part of it, I didn't see all of it, but the Ed Balls program on the care sector on Monday night. And the bit that I saw, there was a 19-year-old guy who was giving personal care to old people, dementia patients, and so on. And his question to the manager of the the home was, 
What do you do to retain this 19-year-old and develop their career, to retain them? Because he's got other ambitions. He wants to be a paramedic. He wants to go do this, that, the other. But you need him to develop his career here because he's really good at it and he's really showing empathy for the people. But he might leave, and he might leave quite soon. And we have the same issues, and many sectors in this country have the same issues. So is it perception and culture in terms of the young people don't perceive it as a long-term career at the moment? It is a, I will do this until I get enough money to do that kind of thing. So it is a sort of joint issue of perception amongst the people who might work in the workforce, and also the culture itself has become more attractive. It's always been an issue. It's just become very visible now. What about the VAT situation, the end of furlough, uh, the travel regulations are changing by the day. Andrew, how do you see that, Melvin? <laughs> uh, well, I don't, I don't have a great... Uh, the, the, I know that the travel restrictions being lifted and a number of the countries coming off the red list has, will have been a, a boom to the, to the industry uh, and, and been a welcome pick-up to the tourism side of it. Uh, they still have issues to face with the... The, even even on the figures that you started with, um, with the business sector picking up, um, it's still, I imagine, nowhere near what it was, and, and I don't expect anybody expects it to. So there's still a gap there to fill. Um, on the VAT side of it, I, I don't know if, if, if Henry can talk better, but it, it, sounds, it would sound to me that, that that just makes things more expensive, um, makes it more difficult for investment, and uh, which in, in, a, in an industry which is already struggling or trying to find its feet. I, I agree. Um, VAT is too high for our segment, for sure. Mm. You know, especially at the moment. You know, people still struggling. Uh, business rates kicking in next year. You know, and for bigger companies like ours, you know, and you know, we already get hundred and ten thousand uh, pound reduction, if I'm correct. Yes. Yeah. Um, if I read this correctly, there's so many. <laughs> but yeah, and, and so we still have to pay a huge amount of business rates, and 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 so it's it's. Not a great help. Mm. The problem is a lot of companies have deferred uh, taxes and, and VAT. Um, they've got debt um, and all this and end of furlough. I mean, it is just a perfect met recipe for next year for lots of problems. For disaster. Yeah, yeah, and the government's not listening. Yeah. And, and that's both parts because we're talking about increasing salaries, you know, to find staff because that's what everybody says. You have to increase the salaries and so on. But, you know, many businesses struggle. You know, to pay the debts off. You know, and you're and, and pushing the problems further away. Yeah, you, you exactly. But they're getting bigger. As yeah, themselves. there's there's two parts, and then of course, if you take London, just London, and you take, and unfortunately, I can only talk on the top segment, so the five star, four star plus five star segment. Many of the hotels are owned by foreign investors, and still, uh, all the new investments, and I'm sure you can uh, agree with that. The conversion rate between turnover and profit, you know, it's been fixed always, you know, and it's very, very high in, this, in, in London, you know, um, and if you, go to London, if you go to Berlin or you go to Paris, the conversion rate for investors are much, much lower because the investment in staff is much, much higher. So there's, there's also that part as well, which plays a huge role for, 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 um, to bring salaries up again. But I, coming back to the VAT point for a second, uh, the, the industry has long campaigned and unsuccessfully, and they will always be unsuccessful on this point. We, and, and now more than ever, the government has made a concession for a period to get us over the, uh, the pandemic, 
and progressively, you know, just gone and just coming in April, the levels will return to the previous levels because we have a pandemic to pay for. All of the support that was given, not just to our sector, but to the whole economy, needs to be paid for. And if it doesn't come in, for, in the form of a VAT, then it will come in the form of corporate taxes or personal taxes or national insurance, well, we're paying more national insurance anyway. So all of those things are going to happen. And I, 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 think, I think the industry has long campaigned for this VAT reduction. It was never going to happen. And I don't believe it ever will happen. Because, because we're a successful, as far as the world sees, we are a successful sector. The previous campaign was, we need to bring our prices down to make us more competitive. We already had London as the most successful hotel city in Europe, and the rest of the UK achieving occupancy levels and average room rates that were above most other, well, if probably all other countries in, in, in Europe, possible exception of France. So all of that was, was out there. Then the, the VAT reduction came, and it was given so that hotels could help to support themselves through the pandemic. Um, now we've got now it's payback time, and I, I just think that we need to accept that that the government are not going to. If if anything, they'll put VAT up, um, but I don't think they will because of the sh political shade of the of, of the government. But they need to raise taxes, so. Giving, uh, giving money back to a sector that is fundamentally successful, I'm not sure I see that. We're painting quite a bleak picture at the moment. Um, are there any other remaining challenges, Sarah, Naomi? In terms of the practi your practice, what have you seen in recent months that your clients are having to face up to? I do think there's the potential for a perfect storm in terms of all the things that we've already talked about. And then generally what's going on in terms of you know, supply issues, increased cost of supply, potential interest rate increases, all these things can sort of join together and make a perfect storm, which could cause, I think, tricky sort of 12, 24 months going forward as well. Um, because, you know, add that to the employment costs we've just talked about, VAT, taking away a furlough, it's, it's a lot to sort of come off the balance sheet, really. Energy costs as well. I mean, that's one point we don't know. When I spoke to a hoteler yesterday, and he was saying he had to cancel a function because you can't actually get the alcohol. The supplies and deliveries are not arriving on time, and the lead-in time for whatever type of alcohol is some party they couldn't get them. So it's uh, the energy point. I think is very concerning. The the you, you say that it's gloomy. It's not. It's not really gloomy. We we have. We had the most successful, before the pandemic, we had the most successful hotel industry in Europe. And one day, we will again, because we have a tremendous tourism product, we have a great hotel sector, we have more hotel rooms in this city than any other in, in, in Europe, and so on and so forth. So the question is, how long will it take us to get back there, and how will the sector be, shaped, be, be reshaped? All of these other things are building blocks along that road. But fundamentally, I'm, I, I'm an optimist in the long term. The next year, who knows? I am too. And the Americans are coming. Yes. <laughs> Which, honestly, I mean, I've got two hotel clients who are counting on it in Scotland. It makes a big difference. And they're fully booked till next October, genuinely. And they're also making people pay hefty deposits so that they can't just pull out or book five hotels and then choose one. Hopefully those days are gone. But, um, sorry, can I just ask Henrik, do you think there will be a sort of 
everybody's managed to keep their prices high. Do you think there's going to be a race to the bottom? People are going to start discounting roommates. I can't see that at the moment. Actually, the prices are going through the roof. Um, because, for example, to operate a 65%, 70% hotel, my, most in Mayfair hotels, the top hotels, all taking out, out of the inventory, the entry-level room category, you know, and that's all the big players, include, you know, and they're taking that out. Uh, so it's the next level of rooms, and the next level of rooms is immediately a certain amount of money. So the average rates at the moment, it's, um, if you can back that up, but it's incredible. Also for us, you know, we're operating, you know, as a family-owned property since, uh, we have the same family since 45 years, and we have never had such high average rates in September and October. Yes, I mean, I spoke to a luxury hotel operator last week, and it's exactly the same as you, and they've, they've, they've even increased the F&B prices by 10%, and no one's, no, no one's noticed at all. So, yeah, um, I keep noticing that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's partly, do you think it partly benefits from segmentation issues so that we've got sort of a, a leisure sector that's buying at best available rate and the corporate sector that was discounted because companies had big, big buying power, so that's sort of gone away. And now you're finding that the rooms that you have got to sell, and I appreciate you're not selling your whole inventory necessarily, but the rooms that you have got to sell, you're able to sell to people who are prepared to pay for it at your best available rate, and the discounted segments have gone away to some extent, for the, at least for the time. At the moment, yes, and we see that in the sales office. We get a lot of calls from um, corporate clients, big corporate clients, uh, who are fishing for rates because they won't be accepted in the signed hotels which they are in, in their programs uh, which they are signed up for 2021, and we get those calls until we then tell our rates and then it gets very quiet on the other hand, on the other side, but uh, it's, that's at the moment the case. People fishing and trying and a lot of big companies can't get the volume into the hotels. Yeah, because they have a, a they found a better game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> better better yeah. segment. And, and profit-wise, and profit wise, I think also, if I take next year, you know, as I'm saying, I'm two, I'm two ways, you know, positive and negative, but I think profit-wise, hotels will go back uh, needed to all profit um, they had in 2019 because um, even we cap but the rates are increased the amount of staff is much less because yeah. hotels have to now work with less staff people in hotels have to be more polyvalent you know much more active with all sorts of jobs and so uh, it could be that our industry uses this to to keep going this way and of course profits will be pretty much the same as 2019. Has it forced a sense of innovation then? Have you, have you a lot of innovation has stemmed yes. from COVID. Yes. What, what about the hotels industry? Yes, of course, you, you had to, you, you, at the moment, you know, a lot of meetings and thinking what we do, you know, for example, in, in the food and beverage sector, we, we changed our concept. You know, before we had an a la carte, we had 18 chefs in the restaurant, and it always was wonderful. Now we can't find 18 chefs, so what do we do? So we change the concept, we have a new chef, uh, we have uh, only tasting menus, because we cook on the Michelin star level, uh, we only open four evenings per week. Um, three days for lunch. Therefore, we, instead of having 18 chefs in the kitchen, we have now eight and a half or seven and a half. You know, so and the tasting menus, average spend. It's you know, first menu it's 75 pounds instead of before having a la carte 35. Normally the check was 35 per person. Now suddenly it's 70 pounds plus the wine matching. So actually, we're taking more money 
for less for less staff so you you know a lot of people are looking at that and changing concepts at the moment for for the consumer of course it gets more expensive and for the consumer it will get more and more difficult to get into good restaurants mm. you see that you know in, in at the moment for december if you want to some of the big names here in mayfair you have no chance to get a table so I was wondering, I mean, when hearing you talk then, whether you know, people talk about COVID being an accelerator in all sorts of areas and automation and uh, there's been, you know, things being talked about in the hotel industry forever and whether this is now with less staff. I, I, to be honest, I've always felt it quite sort of fanciful. You see these sort of robots at the, at the reception desk and things like that. But, you know, and I've never really quite understood how far away if we're ever going to get to that. Do you, is there any feeling that automation is going to be... I mean, the technology is there today. I mean, yeah. so a lot of hotel companies, next time you go look at the door, this little black thing on top of the door, there's a very well-known chain that we all know, and they have had the capacity for years to actually go fully automate it, but they won't do it. There's a hotel um, outside of central London at the minute which are, have done that during COVID as a, as a test. Mm. But the problem is the people that's coming into the hotel, they can't vet the people coming in. So if you've got a hotel, let's say, next to a, a motorway junction, and it's a four-star hotel, um, but the people coming in are getting up to various things that we wouldn't want to mention this table. So, <laughs> so it is that point of how do you, you know, if you look at Whitbread, and for example, you know, when you used to go to Premier Inn in London, you had four receptionists. Now you've got one receptionist and you've got the bank of self-check-in. You know, and eventually, if you look at what Hilton have done, you can actually choose your room. So it is getting there. And I think one other point as well is whether, you know, do you need to clean a room every day? I mean, during COVID, obviously, once you're into your room, that room was sealed and you had it for the duration. So for, obviously not for your, your hotel, Henry, but for, uh, you know, for other hotels, is that another option to try and save money and, and be more efficient? Tori, what about the lending climate? We talked the other day about, um, the, uh, I suppose, the, the fairly generous lending climate during COVID. Um, what are you seeing now? Obviously, things are shifting. And what challenges is that presenting? Well, actually, on the way in this morning, the first email that I saw in my inbox at half past seven was from a client, which is a bank, well-known bank in the real estate industry, telling us how wonderful the hotel and hospitality industry was and how they've just lent on two new deals. One actually was to buy a, a, a small group of pubs. Um, another was to buy a hotel, lend to buy a hotel to refurbish. So I, I came in thinking a bit doom and gloom and suddenly felt quite buoyant about it. But I mean, as you said, the banks have been, the banks have been pretty supportive over the uh, last two years, um, giving holidays, um, uh, waivers, etc. But their sort of tolerance threshold is now at an end. Um, but that presents challenges for them. Um, the mainstream banks have sort of disappeared. The clearing banks aren't really there. Um, there are a lot of alternative lenders in the market, but they're expensive. So the cost of debt has gone up and the availability of debt has gone down. And so I think it's a challenge for any hotel operator now to, to refinance um, or to find new funding. Um, and I, you need really experienced you know, brokers, etc., to help you. It's a complete, um, you know, it's quagmire. Um, but it also presents exciting challenges, I think, for new types of funding and investment in other forms. Um, so, apart hotels, are they taking off? Y yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that I hear, and, and I, I know of a couple of banks that have done a couple of apart hotel deals over the last couple of years. Um, but I think it's going to be challenging. Um, I think there's another problem as well, is uh, some of the big clearing banks that you mentioned, 
um, has said they're not going to renew loans. So I've got some clients who, uh, when that when their loan expires, they're not going to be renewed. So actually, when you go into the market, there's the debt's quite expensive. So you can now see people look at ground rents or other opportunities to try and you know get some financing because it is very very expensive. It, is, it does concern me actually. They're actually turning around to their clients sort of a year out, saying, by the way, in a year's time, we won't be refinancing. And maybe because they have rolled it over a little bit before and have been maybe had a 10-year relationship, they're actually saying go and find new debt. But it takes probably at least a year to get new debt. I don't know. No, it's exactly the exact same issue. Yeah. But there are sharks in the water waiting there for that sharks. blood. There are sharks. There are. There are insolvencies coming down and there are the loan-to-own type lenders coming down the road as well, yeah. which there were obviously after the last We keep recession. We keep hearing, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm too, in, too, too far removed, but... We keep hearing that there's this wall of money looking for investments. Every time anyone puts a hotel on the market, there's, you know, 100 NDAs being being given out and, and numerous interest and, and, and so on. And that seems uh, either premature or, or false economy or, or whatever or just brave. Um, but there will come a time when, when there are opportunities genuinely there. Just not quite sure where... We're fully there, yeah. The loan to values have gone down as well from, from the bank's point of view. So they're not going to be lending more than 50, 55%, say, on a hotel. So you've got to have some really deep pockets. It's equity money. It's equity. They want to see the equity. And also, they're also asking for things like interest reserves as well. So that, you know, if there's a little blip, you know, in the recovery post-COVID, that they've got deep pockets to be able to service the, um, the, in, the interest because it wasn't being serviced. And how can you service the interest with no income? Yeah. And cash flow has become a major issue as well. It's not just LTV, is it? It's, and that's no, because margins are going up um, significantly. They can. The banks are sort of... I don't blame the banks because you know, they have been, I think, amazingly supportive. Absolutely. They kind of have to. And they've been also... A lot of the banks, I think 50 or 60-plus banks, have been involved in the C-bills, um, government lending, um, which has also you know, helped enormous amounts of the hospitality sector as well. But it, it, does, it is still pushing a lot of the problems into the long grass. And in terms of this wall of money, when are we likely to see it? And when will these genuine distressed opportunities arise? $64 million question. <laughs> Interest rates going up, I think, will, I think, will be a bit. I think it's two points. You know, one is we'll see some distress coming through maybe over the next six months. But I do think there'll be a second wave because we've mentioned all these problems that's coming down the line. Um, so you've got, you know, you've got all this debt that needs to repay them back. Um, so I do think it'll come in two waves. There'll be an initial wave and then there'll be a second wave. I mean, as with the bank, we were doing a presentation and I kind of joked to them, you know, when is all this distress going to happen? I said, well, William, you've got it wrong. Um, you know, we've designed the system this time around after the GFC that actually there won't be the same problems we had after the GFC. But then I said, well, yeah, but this time around, the GFC debt for the country was a fraction of what it is. We're back to what's World War II debt levels that's got to have an impact. So it is going to be interesting to see how... What's your thoughts, Melvin, on that? Yeah, I, 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 I believe that there is some, some pain coming down the road. I think the banks, as, as was said, have been amazing. I think the banks have been... Uh, almost had no choice but to be amazing. I think there was a certain amount of, of government pressure. And I also think, why would you press the button on a hotel and foreclose on a debt when if you put it into the market in the middle of a pandemic with no guests, uh, you're not going to get your money back. So they've been patient and they were sort of, that was enforced to be, to be patient. But, but that doesn't mean that there's not a lot of uh, pain under the waterline. And I think that we will see that 
at, at some point. In the words of, of some people, you know, we'll see what happens when the tide goes out and who's wearing or not wearing a costume. Um, and, um, and I think there is an element of that. But I think there's a lot of people that would have thought that that pain might be more visible by now. Yes. And it hasn't been. And I think that's the interesting bit. So if not now, then when? Well, we're, we're seeing from the valuation side, we're seeing a lot more banks instructions coming through. So if you look at Q1, Q2, we're getting very few uh, valuations coming through. Whereas at the minute, you know, our team is spent between doing due diligence for acquisitions and, it, and that's still very busy. But actually the valuation side is, is very, very busy at the minute. So the banks are looking very, very carefully to see. But I mean, I had one bank who, um, it's quite funny actually, the, 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 the customer had allegedly burnt down his hotel, but the bank wouldn't act because they didn't want to be seen to be acting against him. So uh, that shows you how nervous the banks, as you, as you rightly say, are to, to make a move on people. That sounds a little far-fetched. It's true. <laughs> no, 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 I'm, sorry, I'm, not, I'm not doubting that, but it just sounds incredible, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, but that's market win. That's what but you can, see, you can see that banks wouldn't want to, to, to realise the problem. Um, but it doesn't mean that you know, the sector's in rude health, because clearly it isn't. You know, we've all, you know, I, I'm, you, you've got the same reports as me. You know, the London hotel industry is run at 80%. Through thick and thin, you know, with maybe a one-year downturn if someone, you know, 9/11 or it, major events happen, but it comes back really quickly. Well, not now, yeah. and that's and that's a problem. And and when you look outside London, you know, we were, you know, when I was young, it was always, you know, regional occupancies over 70 percent. You know, then we were up to somewhere like 75, 76 percent across, you know, for most analysts' sort of uh, view of the the whole country. Uh, outside London, and now you know, even when it's successful around the coastlines, the big cities are still having having trouble. They're having trouble because the corporate market is not where it should be, um, and they're not all leisure destinations. So, it's it's a problem, and the short term is difficult for all the reasons, cost and revenue. But in the future, there's a really positive uh, spin on it. So some banks. Hopefully, we'll sit in there, but they'll also take a view on their clients, and they will know that some clients are really good, and we've had a really good relationship, and they always go the extra mile to, to pay our debt and, and to take notice of their covenants and the rest of it, and there will be others who have not been such good clients who will now find it very difficult, and, that, and they might end up being out of the market and food for the, for the sharks. Where's the, this wall of money likely to go in the long term? If we have these long-term systemic changes, business travel never gets to the levels of 2019, which many have predicted. Um, where are the opportunities for investment? I mean, there is, I think the, the other issue as well is, so just to answer your question, is those products that come into the market at the minute, which are good, they have no blemishes, there is a market for that. But at the minute, if you try and take something to the market which has got problems or issues, there's a very big gap between those two. Um, and you know, the people that were come to us, and you know, Melvin's probably seen the amount of phone calls we have from people saying they want to buy a hotel at 50% discount, and we were saying, well, that will never happen. Um, but there is a portfolio of hotels, um, Z Hotels, which is on the market at the minute, and that sustained a lot of interest. And the bidding on that's come out very strong. And the pricing was quite aggressive on it. So there is a lot of money out there. I mean, 
some of the clients we're seeing are getting frustrated. They've raised this money, it's sitting there doing nothing. The investors are saying, you've said you can deliver this, you can't, you're not delivering it. You said it'd be Q3, Q4 this year. That's not gonna happen. So when the, whenever good stock does come out, we are seeing some pressure on pricing. Are foreign investors coming back? Yes, but the problem is some of those people expect discounting. Yeah. Um, but what's also the, the pension funds and institutional funds, um, you know, we're sitting at the minute with what nine acquisitions at the minute, uh, very, very keen to get deals through before Christmas, So, which I never thought would be the position this time of year. Uh, I've also seen some instances, one that I'm dealing with at the moment, where the people are quite keen to invest for various reasons in the UK hotel sector. And they're abroad, a long way abroad. They can't come over and, and see it. They can't come here. And I can't, I'm not sure if they can't come here because our government won't allow them. I think that's not the case anymore. But their government might not allow them or they might just not feel comfortable getting on a plane for, you know, 12 hours or whatever it is. So there are, there are lots of barriers in, in, in the market. Um, and, you know, just, we just want to get back to normal, but no one knows what normal is. Do you, do, you, do you see um, construction costs being on anybody's radar and influencing these decisions? Yeah. I mean, it's killing our pipeline. Yeah. Um, so if you look at all the pipelines coming through, you know, if you cities like Manchester and, and, and Glasgow, where there's a lot of stock being built at the minute. But if you, I've sat down today on three things, an uh, amazing hotel development site in London, and we yeah. can't get it to work. Yeah. And you're just going, this should work, but the build costs have gone up by 10% in the yeah, last year. Yeah. Um, and then some of our clients, are, a client yesterday, um, his contract has gotten into administration. Yeah. So now he's having to step in and, and, and things like that there. So it's becoming very, very challenging. Yeah, it's a terrible time to be trying to build a hotel or refurbish it, yeah. I mean, for all sorts of reasons. And there's a massive pipeline. There's a, um, from, from before the pandemic, yeah. you know, there's tens and tens of thousands of hotels in, uh, around the UK and, 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 you know, lots of thousands in London as well. And... Um, you know, you're right, some are, some are well underway and they probably haven't been affected by quite so much, except they've got to open in the middle of a time when occupancy levels are not great. Um, but there's others that are not quite at that point and it is, it is really problematic now. So it's a, it's a perfect storm from many points of view. And even if you've got a fixed price contract, you know, will that contract be able to deliver that? You know, will, will they actually survive? Well, We've yeah. just seen that. Well, you've seen more than we have seen. But, yeah. Well, I mean, the, the yeah, fixed price contract is, is the traditional way that you would procure something. But what we're seeing is that you you'd normally have a typical um, sort of design development period, so a lender and letter of intent, and then you've got your preferred contractor. And just before you go into your fixed price contract, um, the contractor says actually steel's gone up 25% and uh, you know uh, this doesn't work for me any longer and the and the client is in a terrible position because they've completely committed over six months or so to to this one preferred contractor mm. who, who said actually it's going to cost more it's going to take longer uh, what are you going to do and it's a very difficult position to be, to be in but any other contractor is going to have the same price of steel well yeah I mean I, so, yes exactly so and, if they retended they then probably end up with the same solution just a much higher price. This is what we end up sort of going through the client. You sort of sort of say you have to you have to make the contractor feel that he hasn't got the job and he can you know he can write a blank check. You have to feel that there's a plan B there, but knowing that probably plan B is going to cost you as much and take as long. Yeah. In some ways, it's maybe not a bad thing because it means the existing hoteliers and you don't want to see more new competition coming into London, do you? Um, so um, actually, if you've got an existing hotel, you don't want too much supply coming in. So actually, is this a natural way of just kind of holding back some of that supply coming in to allow hotels to come back and, and, and breathe? 
controversially. Yeah. I think I think that you mentioned before, uh, Will, the di let's call it dilapidated supply, underinvested supply. Um, there are hotels in London, around the country, that in many cases should have either been refurbished heavily or in some cases should have been demolished or changed to alternative use. The pandemic should speed that up, but I'm not sure it's going to. Uh, councils are keen to protect jobs, but we haven't got enough staff in the first place. So there's lots of those sort of issues along the way as well. And I would also criticise investors that have come into the sector and taken a quick turn over the last decade or two, where there was a promise of a, of a property investment plan, um, and it didn't happen because after two, three years, someone else came in and said, oh, we'll take that portfolio off your hand at the same price. No one, no one invested in the properties. Where do we end up now? Just had a pandemic. Those properties have never been invested, and they're really disappointing, not fit for purpose, and not worth what the current people paid for them. So that's a problem because I don't think they're going to refurbish. The refurbishment cost is higher and they can't close and find an alternative use. So there are lots of those sort of issues as, as well. Um, you know, we, we have the new supply that could come in and really revitalize the whole hotel sector in lots of places. But uh, that means some people have got to drop out and, and it's not easy for that to happen. Andrew, what, what are you likely to see in your practice or what are you seeing? You talked about the problems with fixed price contracts, uh, the issues with supply chains, labour shortages, uh, building costs. Um, clearly that's going to lead to tensions, disputes. Um, how, you, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's a very difficult world for contractors to make ends meet. It's always very difficult. They run on very tight margins anyway. Uh, and this particular climate is, makes it even more difficult. And so they, they have to finish jobs. They have to, they, it's inevitable they'll be cutting corners, value engineering. So, you know, I fully expect to see, um, you know, schemes not being built out to the quality that they should be. Um, or they're just, the quality is there, but it just takes so much longer. Um, uh, or cost more. So th th they're almost certainly going to be disputes falling out of this process because it is a, it is a very difficult time. And you, you, th you throw in, you know, the, the cladding crisis that we've got at the moment as well, um, where, you know, there's a large number of the branded hotels that are in the press having to deal with multi-million pound cladding claims. Um, you know, these are, these are not small um, schemes and they are visible, it's terrible reputationally, uh, they can operate, they can be procured so that they can operate, but the people then have uh, got to deal with scaffolding on the outside for, for, I mean, these are 12 month, 18 month projects. They range sort of five to 10 million pounds. And, and really there isn't a building safety fund available for them as, as there is in the residential sector. Um, there is in theory recourse to contractors and designers. Um, but, uh, the way is not clear because the regulation is so it is a moving feast at the moment and so even if you can establish some sort of liability for uh you know combustible materials on the building that didn't pass the tests at the time of building the question is well to what standard should they be built now and should are we allowed to leave combustible materials on the building uh yes in some certain circumstances no in others uh and it leaves everybody very very uncertain as to the way forward. And how are the insurers? Um, are they all 
and the insurers are running a mile. I mean, you know, the, the government's doing its best to sort of um, collate, you know, get a sort of a, a mutual fund of insurers, but, but that hasn't materialised yet. Um, and it's had a knock-on effect throughout the industry, leaving aside cladding claims. I mean, uh, you know, PI, PI insurance now is incredibly difficult. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing more, i got to point out as an expert witness actually for a high court case. Yes. And you're just seeing people's patience now with cladding is getting very, very thin. Yeah. At the beginning, we're, we're all working together. And, and you know, if you look at Whitbread, they went on to Newsnight, first company, and said, look, we will look at this and are very, very open. And then if you look at the cases that are now left over, they are very, very painful cases. Yeah. They're certainly the ones I'm seeing. Um, and I've just been appointed as I sit in this hotel in central London, a very well-known hotel. And it's now going to go to high court, which yeah. is, yeah, it's quite sad, actually. Well, you might be one of the first that, because uh, everybody's crying out for, uh, for a decided decision on it. But and most people, it'd be interesting to see it actually gets through to the trial, because mm. what, what we're finding is that you take off the panels, you know, the, and what's behind is a whole host of horrors of, of cut, uh, corner, cutting corners. And, and you kind of think no contractor wants that yeah. sort of out in, out in the press. So um, a lot of them are settling at the moment. Um, so you, um, you may get off the hook. <laughs> yeah. Cladding itself, I understand, is very hard to come by the supply chain. On that front, from China, I think, and specifically, is difficult. Overall, uh, with, the, with the regulations somewhat in flux, what effect is that happen, having on development and investment? Well, it just means people are taking a very cautious approach. So, um, as I said, you, you, you can leave combustible materials on a building, but... Um, People are finding, and Sarah, you, you probably find this a little bit in the CRE market, that you know, even though you can find a fire engineer that says this is fine, we've got a bit of insulation here which is encapsulated in masonry, you're fine. People are just saying, I'd rather not have yeah. combustible material on my building, and so it's it's stymieing investment and uh, and also and, and also your construction um, is working. And lenders, yeah. So, and that and that really is that really is down to, uh, like you say, a, a moving feast. People not completely understanding it, and and just going to the most cautious approach. Um, and and it and it's not helpful for for deal activity. Um, we talked earlier a little bit about innovation and perhaps the changing uh, business models, in particular in cities. Uh, um, we talked the other day, I think, a little bit about service departments um, moving more into food and beverages, food deliveries, I suppose, during uh, lockdowns. Um, what else are you seeing, Naomi, perhaps, on the, on the innovation, changing business models front? I do think, yes. Yeah, so you've covered a lot of the things that we saw sort of in the pandemic, more focus on F&B, I think, because that was the area that was still open and the government obviously putting their initiatives out there. We have seen more sort of apart hotels. I, I think that was coming on a bit before the pandemic anyway. Um, but that might be accelerated given people might be nervous about staying in a traditional hotel setting. So it might be helpful for those sorts of um, sort of guests, really. Um, but yeah, I think it is a, a case of diversifying what the traditional hotel looks like whether that be apart hotels whether it'll be trying to increase your pool by taking on available rooms by taking on high-end apartments that fit your sort of uh brand i do think there is uh, a case for sort of diversifying in the future and i think we will have to 
just to meet demand and also what what people are looking for, essentially. Isn't there a rise also there in the I call lifestyle hotels? And green initiatives. Yeah. Yeah. People just want a little bit more out of their hotel rather than just bed and breakfast. I saw, um, I saw a home tell and it was a description of what a home tell is, which is effectively a home that a hotel that feels like a home, I suppose. And maybe that's where the market is potentially going with service departments, which feel, which feel a bit more like you have your own space. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this home tell concept, whatever that is. So the, the two ends of the market are kind of growing, aren't they? So Henry's five-star luxury, fabulous hotel, uh, you know, doing incredibly well. The budget and partial hotel end of the market doing very well. But, you know, as you said earlier, but that middle market where, as you said earlier, but those portfolios that have moved around haven't had money spent on them. That is the very, very painful part. I mean, we work a lot on the part hotel side, and you know, I, I, we had to a research study piece for Cambridge University, and the reason why they wanted more part hotels in Cambridge is because people were travelling throughout the world who had dietary requirements, who didn't want to eat in a hotel room uh, or in a hotel restaurant, um, people were more conscious about what they eat and so on. So actually, if you're going away for work for, let's say, four nights, do you really want to eat in a, a restaurant every night for four nights? Whereas, you know, and especially people travelling from Asia as well, some of the food isn't compatible for them for a, a period of time, so actually having that ability. But um, yeah, the occupancy levels and also profit conversion is very, very strong. Yeah, and that's an interesting point in terms of the type of traveller as well, because we've sort of heard that uh, the Asian market is probably slower to come back than the American and other markets. So will you see the Asian market move more towards looking at apart hotels because they feel more comfortable in that, in that space? I don't know if you've seen that, Henrik, and if that's sort of borne out in terms of Asia coming back a bit slower than the other markets. At the moment, Asia, we don't see at all. You know, we normally have strong Singapore, Hong Kong um, kind of markets, uh, not at all. Uh, I know you mentioned at the beginning the US market and everybody was excited. You saw the news with two planes getting off at the same time. (laughs) Exciting, but people seem to forget that actually at the moment only 30% of the pre-pandemic flights are going over the Atlantic. You know, so it's not that we have 100% flights as in 2019 going back and forth. So it's a small amount of flights at the moment who are going across and I think BA today announced they're looking now for 4,000 staff members to go to the next level. Um, uh, so it will take time. Uh, you know, I'm excited to see US clients, but I don't think we will be swamped uh, at, at the next, in the next 12 months. And with Asia, that apparently, my daughter lives in Hong Kong, they will not stop the uh, quarantine, 21 days quarantine that you have to do when you're over there if you're a Hong Kong national in a very expensive place till at least June next year. And also the corporate companies who are based in those cities, countries, they are putting in very strict rules. And some of the rules at the moment we can't comply because, for example, there's a huge bank who normally comes to the UK and they're saying because in some cities in Europe or hotels in Europe they're starting now, it's called the 2G. Uh, 2G means geimpft, means vaccinated, and the other G is for genesen, means you had it. Uh, so you have the anti, anti, you know, antibodies. And so we can't, you know, I cannot guarantee in these contracts that all my staff is vaccinated. You know, we don't have that here. I know some other countries going over now. Austria just announced for the winter season, you can only work if you're fully vaccinated. You know, and then yes, but at the moment we don't have that. So these corporate clients won't come under the company rules and regulations. I think the other thing that was, that was touched on, which is off this point, but 
on it is is the the green and uh, an environmental agenda you know there are there are people you mentioned 30 percent of flights are flying but there's a conference going on at the moment and they would like to see uh, almost none of those flights are going in in the more extreme examples um, but I, but I think that the, the bigger concern that I've got, and I've, I've seen some sort of webinars and other things during the pandemic on this topic, is companies, the, the fear is that companies use the opportunity to get to their net zero agenda and reduce corporate travel or, or put in additional controls uh, on corporate travel uh, within their companies. And that could affect the business sector uh, almost as much as all of the other rules that you that you just mentioned. I think that that concerns me, despite the fact that I understand it from an environmental and saving the planet point of view and uh, and so on. But I think when things start to normalise, I think we will see uh, companies taking a view uh, somehow by some form of controls on the levels of business travel, and that is obviously a concern. Um, unless it can be completely replaced, as it is at the moment, by, by leisure travel, as we were discussing earlier. And it will hit, what you said earlier, what it will hit is the, the middle sector. You know, it won't hit the top sector. No. The top sector will go up and will still boom. We are lo if I take London, London is London, there's no other city in Europe, so much I love Paris, will come near to it, especially on the business level. <laughs> and, but uh, as you say correctly, people will stop, but it's more the middle management who then go to the next the lower level of hotels and i think they will suffer those who are not uh, who are not renovated will suffer um and you see it in the investment in london how many big companies at the moment still investing and new hotels opening in the next two or three years incredible big brands are coming into london and i think if you, you know you said you were getting lots, lots of corporate inquiries before which were a, a lot about rate from from what you said but i'm sure within those uh, rfps that they're also asking uh, what environmental procedures have you got, in the same way they're asking uh, some of those other questions. I'm sure they're starting to ask environmental ESG type questions. Yeah. Totally, and you have to answer, absolutely. You know, not only environmental, also uh, social engagement. You'll be surprised how many companies asking for social engagement, uh, starting to ask, what are you doing as a company? Um, in Europe, quite advanced. In Germany, we are quite advanced with the social engagement. Here, people don't talk much about it. Um, not yet, not yet. We have seen it in the pandemic when um, big hotels, and again, I take this circle here, Mayfair, and you know, and who served uh, tea and coffee for NHS and things like this, who, who started this and, and keep going. You know, we, you know, for example, we at the moment, we started directly on the beginning, April of last year, we started to support a homeless charity, you know, and we cook on a weekly basis and, you know, volunteering. Uh, and I'm sleeping out on the 22nd of uh, November, 150 CEOs in London sleeping out in Lord's Cricket Ground to raise money, you know. But the moment we put this out, we put it in the newsletter because we thought it was interesting. The amount of corporate clients who came back and want to engage Donate money was incredible. For me, it was incredible, you know, and, um, and that's a big part as well which will come. Consumer priorities are obviously changing considerably and have changed enormously in the last 18 months, and ESG might form part of that. But how is the industry changing the way it markets itself to consumers? Um, in, in terms of ESG, I just actually wanted to pick up something that you, you mentioned in terms of the pressure, sorry, in terms of the pressure coming from um, 
consumers in this case. That's really interesting to hear because I was just thinking from a hotel management perspective and you see, I mean, we see, we're seeing green leases as well now, but you're not seeing that so much in the hotel management space. So it's interesting to see when those two um, concepts converge and it will hit your hotel management type contracts where people will say, either owners will say, we need um, clauses that are similar to the green leases clauses or whether it will hit a performance test or something. It'll be interesting to see when it actually hits hits the documents, I think. But in terms of marketing, I think there will be there will be interest in ESG, whether from consumers, investors. I think it's on everyone's agenda at the moment, isn't it? Alongside all the all the other things that I think hotels probably need to think about in terms of. I mean, the flexibility piece came in over the pandemic, and I think that's probably here to stay in terms of people just wanting to know and be sure while the pandemic is still around that there is some flexibility. Um, but yeah, I don't know if anyone else has got any other thoughts on it. I think you can see some coming in from the consumer side, but I think you can also see people that are investing in private equity or lenders, or, or, yeah. or hedge funds or whatever they're investing in. They're also asking those questions from what I understand of those funds. Um, so all in all, um, you know, COP26 and, and beyond, people are asking those questions and expect a certain type of answer. And have been for many a year. I mean, legal in general are huge on it. I mean, they are the ones that really introduce the green lease clauses that everybody follows in commercial property transactions. And the hotels that I've been dealing with are, are, are trying to boast about their initiatives, what they're doing. I think actually, you're absolutely right, the pension funds are all now, every lease has to have a green clause. And we were doing some renegotiations part of COVID, so we're you know, extending leases to give rent-free periods to allow hotels survive and so on. And as part of that deal, we, put, we have to have green clauses put in. Yeah. And I think going forward, that is going to become an issue. But I think there is some operators coming out there, just to answer your question in terms of what the industry is doing, um, it's a company called Beyond, and uh, so they're producing uh, part hotel rooms. They don't use any chemicals in terms of the cleaning. Uh, the paints are all non-chemical paints. Uh, the, the bed's all handmade and, and things like that there. So there is companies now looking at that. And what they've been saying to companies like Amazon and Google who, who are saying, oh, we look after our staff very well. And so well, you, you have these offices and then you're sending these kind of branded hotels who use all these chemicals and things like that there. Um, so there is companies are looking at it, but the big hotel companies, I think, haven't really quite grasped that yet. I think COVID, in terms of things like chemical cleaning and things like that there, has obviously changed. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how that works post. Well, you're going to see the rise of sustainability sustainability linked loans aren't you in the financing market which you're starting starting to see and that's exactly um point there can be performance targets based on on your esg and your sustainability metrics and those now are a bit fluffy but they they are coming down the track i think for a lot of businesses and operators um and i think as the reporting requirements increase there'll be more data for people to be able to measure and say whether you're the sort of business they want to invest in, given the data that you've put out on ESG. Well, all businesses are now encouraged to be more transparent, aren't they, on their um, ESG and their sustainability um, even data, even law firms. Yes. How, how tough do you foresee the reporting requirements becoming, given what's being discussed at COP26, Net Zero London? From a compliance perspective, it's not just 
consumer pressure. I do think that is probably right, all your bigger chains. You're already seeing the sort of IHGs and Marriott's of this world sort of putting out their ESG statement of what they're going to do and what they're going to report on and sort of converging with consumer pressure and everyone is focusing on it around the world. I, I can't see the regulation getting less stringent and requiring less information to be available. So I think it's only going one way. Well, it requires all of us to be accountable to each other. Exactly. And, and actually, if the big chains lead that, then other people will follow. It might go one way, but it might go one way fairly slowly. Because we're talking, either, we're talking about basic organisations. Well. well, there is cost involved, but also you're talking about organisations that haven't actually got much control because they're basically franchising organisations. So they've got to enforce it on contracts that were sometimes signed you know, decades ago. Um, and they've got to enforce it. Now, if the underlying owners or operators or whatever they are own the problem uh, as well and accept the, 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 the direction of travel, then they will embrace it. Um, if it doesn't suit them, either from a, from, a, or from a business perspective, they won't embrace it so quickly. Um, and in the same way that, you know, it's been fairly slow to bring in other corporate procedures and processes, this could take a while. Um, but so, these things are never quick. Quick, no, anyway. because and maybe slow is better because, because it gets it gets. We are a terribly sports. fragmented industry, and even when you consider the consolidated parts in general, we're still fragmented because the ownership is not common underneath all of those pieces. So it's good that the corporate chains are making the right noises, but enforcement is, uh, you know, requires a different uh, stick. Yeah, or carrot. Or, well, or, 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 or carrot, but I, I'm not sure they've got the carrot to offer. Um, where's the incentive? You know, are they really going to incentivise? So I, I think a stick is more likely than a carrot, although I would love to see carrots. Although some carrots are led by the banks because they're reducing margins, well, yeah. so that is a carrot. No, that is true as well. So that is true. Yeah. No, there are, there are lots of stakeholders here, and I, 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 accept, I accept that. And, and the customer is also a stakeholder. Mm. They can demand... They can demand you know this, in the in the same way. You know, a good example is the uh, the tipping situation where it was apparent, uh, not hotels particularly, but restaurants. Some were were pocketing some of the the, the tips, and the, the the campaign that happened quickly, despite a very fragmented sector, suddenly came from the customers who were starting to ask in restaurants, "Are you getting these tips?" and blah blah blah, and so. You know, I think the customer has a, has a voice when they understand that they need to use it. One final topic. Uh, we discussed with Ben the other day, and I don't know if Sarah, you might want to talk to this, the relationship between landlords and tenants uh, and rent arrears from the pa pandemic. Are agreements being reached? Are disputes arising? Agreements have been being reached and will be absolutely reached much more quickly now that there's some new legislation that is due to come in, in in March next year. But with effect from today, all proceedings for arrears of pandemic arrears due to being shut, restaurants and hotels being shut down by COVID um, are stayed. And um, a regime is being introduced whereby landlords are encouraged to negotiate with tenants. And if they can't reach settlement, then it goes to arbitration rather than court. So hopefully, well, I... I think there will be a big impetus on landlords to try and make 
settlements now with tenants in difficulties. They have to be genuinely in difficulty. The likes of Sports Direct won't probably qualify for this rent fencing and stay in proceedings, but I think there will be a lot more negotiation, hopefully, coming forward from, honestly, from yesterday. Right. And longer term, what are the implications? Well, landlords and tenants should share risk, and a lot of leases are on turnover rent, turnover rents. There should be some sort of collaboration for any venture to really work. Would you agree? It's a difficult one, actually, because I think for, for branded hotels, most of the, the, the debates with landlord and tenants in terms of rent payments have all been, most of them have been sorted, and, and we've been very active in that. And, and so it's the only ones that are left over now, which are the problem ones. Um, and then beyond that, apologies, we don't do much with independent landlords. I'm not quite sure what's happening with that part of the sector. Um, but, you know, a lease structure is given that, you know, let's say if it rent equates to 50% of profit, okay? The reason why in London, you know, a London hotel owner gives the, the lease is they're meant to take the good times and the bad times. Otherwise, they might as well just put a management agreement in and take, let's say, 90% of the profit and take the ups and downs with that. So it is a difficult point. You know, I, I see both sides of the point because actually I can see why some London landlords are saying, why should I be, you know, I might as well take it back and put a management agreement and take more profit. Um, so it's a difficult one. I think most, certainly our clients have all been very collaborative in terms of looking at ways to try and resolve it. So we've been looking at lease structures and trying to create ways to create value. We've done quite a lot with that and that's worked very, very well. We've got a handful of cases left over now where, you know, people are, you know, it, it's, it's going to get very litigious. Yeah. It just depends what happens with the court when you turn up. You know, what, will the court adopt the, the, Australian, the Australian style deal? Um, that's well, the new regime, the new scheme, the details haven't been you know, disclosed yet, but it seems to be that it will favour the tenants, provided they can prove that they, they were shut down, they couldn't trade, and it, you know, they have the financial difficulties that need, they really do deserve sort of some help. Um, and then the rest will just go to the... <laughs> it'll weed out the wheat from the chaff. I'm conscious of time. We're 15 minutes over. Um, as an outsider, it's been genuinely fascinating. I've really, really enjoyed listening to all of you. Andrew, are there any final... Is there anything we've missed? Any, any final remarks? No, it's been a fascinating discussion. It's been, I've learned a lot, and it's been, uh, as I thought, having such a, a wealth of experience around the table. Um, really interesting discussion. So thank you very much all for your time. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.